Hello and welcome to the Culture File Debate. I'm Luke Clancy and on the eve of the big kickoff at Doha, Culture File, like everything else, can't help thinking about football. Football, you say. There's never been a worse time to give in to football. The product is everywhere. An explosive fountain of information and XGs, entertainments and spread bets gushing from every crack in the media sphere. The concentration of the world's best players and much of its money in three or four teams ensures every match has the potential to create the ultimate exhibition of the art as well as several terabytes of sanctified data. And now there's Qatar 22, a tournament so dubious even watching it might be a crime and it's certainly a sin. But probably will all the same, maybe a couple of games anyway, see how it goes. There's never been a better time to give in to football. So yes, that's what we're talking about, football. Wondering, do we like it anymore? Can we excuse it anymore? Or like other sticky technologies of our world, I'm thinking of Twitter here, is there only hate posting, hate watching, hate loving left? Are benchful of theory physios ready to help us contemplate the ruptured cruciate of our love for football? Are Arat Gatt, an art writer and editor, currently at work on a ball-watching memoir called If Anything Happens. Hi, Arat. Hi, nice to meet you. How are you doing? Here also is writer and filmmaker Juliet Jakes, who's recently been writing about football art films and turns out for her local team, Clapton Community FC. Hi, Juliet. Hey, how's it going? Very good, thank you. And also with us is artist and author Adrian Duncan, among whose works is the 2021 collection of short stories, Midfield Dynamo. Hello, Adrian. Hello. Hello, how are you doing? So uh, we, 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 we need to get warmed up so as not to do any uh, damage to our ligaments. And um, so I thought we'd start with a little question about football strips. I wanted to know about a strip you love, a shirt, a football shirt. It's It's a funny question because... You know, it's it's not really a, a dispassionate question about uh, design because the people wearing the shirt have an influence on how you feel about it and, and what they did when they were wearing it. So uh, tell us about your favourite shirts. All right, Gat. I actually don't have a favourite shirt. I keep thinking about how... As a child, I really wanted one, um, but I grew up in the Middle East and there was nowhere to get a Liverpool shirt, which is what I wanted. And thus, I feel like I've been a bit kind of like anti-shirts my whole <laughs> life. Um, and so I would like to say like 2005 Liverpool, but that's also just like the team that I like the most. But that's it. So if you were wearing one, it might be a Liverpool one. It would definitely be. Juliet Jakes. <laughs> There are so many. Um, Ariet, next next birthday, I'm getting you a Liverpool 2005 <laughs> shirt with Jimmy Traore's name on the back. Um, my favourite shirt, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I, unlike Ariet, I have uh, dozens of football shirts. I um, pick them up all the time whenever I go travelling. Um, it's hard to pick a favourite, but um, I mean... You mentioned that I play for Clapton Community, and one of the things that put that club on my radar was the away shirt they produced uh, a few seasons ago based on the uh, Republican flag from the Spanish Civil War, like the club sort of styles itself as like, uh, it's fan-owned, styles itself as anti-fascist. Uh, and this shirt sold um, thousands, uh, you know, for a club that was in, I think the men's team were in like the 11th division at the time, uh, sold thousands of shirts uh, in Spain 
And it's just one of the things that really attracted me to the, the club who I now play for. So, yeah, I'm going to go with that. It's interesting. We have something of a similar phenomenon with Bose shirts, which tend to be sort of quite politically politically motivated. Adrian Duncan, what are you wearing for the big day? <laughs> um, well, it's pretty easy because the second you asked that question, the, uh, a shirt came straight to mind. And it still is my, one of my favourite shirts. It was when I started um, watching football, probably. It was probably around, uh, well... 86 was probably my first proper memory of a World Cup. So that was Maradona's um, Argentina. And I kind of have a very great fondness for that uh, Argentina shirt. But it was the Euro 88 uh, championships afterwards where Ireland played in their first major championship. And I was 10. And I remember um, Chris Hewton and Ronnie Whelan. Um, I remember Ronnie Whelan's goal against uh, Soviet Union. Um, So I think that Ireland jersey from 88 was... I loved it because it was green and it had a sort of netting across the uh, upper arm and um, it had a lovely simple logo and it was often seen with the word Opal across the front of it, which was the main uh, sponsor at the time. So that uh, and Paul McGrath played at the time and uh, Liam Brady was on his way out. So it was a sort of, it was a shirt wearing by, worn by absolutely brilliant Irish footballers um, and they played in that European Championships really brilliantly as well. So I just have very, very strong uh, emotional attachments and aesthetic attachments to that jersey what was interesting about the jerseys in general is that uh, you know they're really about a time and a place like they're about the past it's not it's not the this season's jersey that's uh, that's of interest it's one that you know marked a certain period of 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 your enjoyment of football largely and i suppose that's uh, that's one of the fascinating things is that for for an activity that it's that's about the moment about you know uh, being very present and being able to do something in a specific moment nostalgia is a really big part of uh, how we consume and and understand football why, why do you think that is Arit? I would argue that nostalgia is also the way that we prove how much we love football, is that knowing all of these small details about the past shows that you were always there and that you have some kind of authority to it, and that this object, which I may not have a relationship to, and then would also say that I don't need an object to remind me because I was always watching, is just another form of proof, is just evidence. Juliet, would you want to say something about nostalgia and football? Like you were talking there about, uh, you know, a club that's sort of very present and its activities are something you're involved in kind of on an everyday basis. But when you think about football, is it a sort of, is it free from nostalgia? Are you imagining a period when uh, it was purer or better or, or, or when you had a different and healthier relationship? Um, when I often think about football and, you know, capitalism and the types of capitalism uh, that we live under and what that does to football. Uh, You know, I, like a lot of people of my generation, I came to football with the 1990 World Cup. And then shortly after that, the um, Premier League breakaway uh, and the introduction of the Champions League. And these, in lots of ways, made football um, a lot more popular, but I think also a lot uh, less democratic and a lot more concentrated in the hands of the the wealthy you know the the champions league in particular has meant a far smaller range of clubs from a small, far smaller range of places being competitive on the european level um you know the first club i remember being champions of europe was uh, red star belgrade which is absolutely unthinkable now and the premier league has sort of done the same you know i mean i 
re, you know, I'm a Norwich City supporter and I remember Norwich nearly winning the Premier League on an absolute shoestring in 1992 to 93. In fact, having just sold their star striker. And again, you know, it feels that broadly speaking, football is a lot less competitive. And so it is, you know, as a supporter of a, a smaller club, of course, uh, there is an awful lot of um, nostalgia for a period where it felt a lot more competitive. But it's important to say that, you know, fans in the early 90s would have been looking back at the 60s or the 70s and saying, well, that was a time when football was less corporate and less commercial. Fans in the 60s might have been looking back to, you know, the 1930s and saying the same thing. So in a sense, it was ever thus. And, uh, you know, nostalgia is an illness, I think. Adrian, that habit we have of sort of blending our biographies with football, is I wonder, is that sort of a, a, a kind of longing for a common culture that um, maybe other things aren't providing, like maybe, you know, for you know, to pick low-hanging fruit, maybe television isn't providing, that we don't have that common culture and we're trying to make it from football sometimes. And that leads to a kind of nostalgic vision. Adrian? Yeah, but I think that, that because of these really intense moments in the past that you remember from football, uh, they always belong in the past because they appear very, very quickly and then all of a sudden they're into the past and they're gone forever. Um, and I think those moments that you um, that are extremely intense, like, for instance, when you know Ronnie Whelan equalised against or, uh, England in the World Cup in 1990, I remember that, or Kevin Sheedy equalised, I remember that very, very vividly and I remember the intensity of that feeling as well. And I remember the overall intensity of World Cup 90. It was like our, the first time Ireland really exploded onto a world stage. So I have this sort of very, very strong feeling and memories of that time. And I think watching football... In, is sort of an attempt to reclaim or to relive those kinds of those kinds of, and in my instance, childish feelings of extreme uh, intensity and of extreme sort of belonging. Even though I wasn't at any of the games, um, but I could somehow sort of uh, the joy and the clarity of what was happening, uh, even to a ten-year-old, was I could understand very, very kind of directly, you know. And I think there's something that you're always chasing that feeling. There is, as I think, and I think when uh, Juliette, Juliette says that it's it's an addiction or it's an illness, I do think that kind of nostalgia and that following of football is it, it has the hallmarks of a sort of illness, like that you are kind of constantly wanting or some sort of strange addiction. Um, you don't want the same thing because you know it can't happen again like that. But there's so you want it again. You want that feeling again of intensity. All right. Are, are those feelings that uh, that you experienced when you were younger? Not at all. I mean, what Adrian is describing is exactly the opposite <laughs> of what I grew up watching. I grew up watching football as you know, a new fan, right? I was watching teams from countries I've never been to. I was trying to imagine what Europe is like just from like seeing like, you know, the drone image of the stadium. Um, and to me, it wasn't, this is not something that I know how to explain to this day. Like to me, World Cups was like sitting at home alone, waiting for my dad to come home from work so that someone would watch with me. Israel never qualified for anything. Um, I didn't really follow the country where I'm from. I just really loved watching something and having a common language with my dad. I don't think I ever realized that one day I will grow up and have other people to talk to about football. I think I quite possibly thought my dad was the only person on earth who liked it. That kind of fits in with the, the, the an idea I was having around the, the nostalgic notion of football and why we worry about it changing is that 
we develop these kind of relationships where we think we possess football, and, and in your case, uh, are it yourself and your father possessed football. But actually, it's this very strange hyper object that we don't have control of, and 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 we don't really have a stake in it any more than we have a stake when we buy a bottle of Coca Cola, and and sometimes we're we're sort of brought up we're sort of slammed into a wall with that realization that we don't own uh, football in the way that we imagine or the way that uh, the intensity of our relationship suggests to us. Juliet. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a really interesting thing. Um, I mean, you know, who owns football? Uh, And at this point you would have to say it's a large number of, well, not a large number of, a handful of oligarchs and the people at sort of FIFA and UEFA, you know, these big international governing bodies that are, are very, very difficult to hold to any kind of account. Uh, and you just have to hope that they're not going to make decisions that take the sport away from you entirely or make it unenjoyable for you or unaffordable for you. And it's not so much wanting to possess the thing yourself. For me, it's wanting the sport to be, you know, kind of governed and run by people who have its, you know, best interests at heart and aren't just using it for profit. But um, anything as sort of popular and globally popular as, as football, uh, it's very, very hard to um, to stop that happening. Uh, and it's very hard to see the processes by which it would be properly regulated to stop that happening. And, you know, the Qatar example is, a, the, the Qatar World Cup is a pretty stark example of all of this. You know, possibly thousands of people have died uh, building the stadia for the tournament um it's pretty much universally acknowledged that the bidding process was um uh highly dubious and you know a number of people who are in the room at the time have subsequently been sent to prison or had charges dropped against them for lack of evidence you know the tournament is happening you know at a time that cuts into the regular season it deprives us of our usual summer world cup um you know, there's nothing to like about it, really. Um, but what can we do about it? You know, very little, really. And lots of my friends, including Orit and I, you know, have discussed the issue of whether or not we should boycott it uh, and reach the sad conclusion that there's almost no point boycotting it because it won't make a blind bit of difference to anything. Um, so it's sort of thinking about how we can build our own uh, ways into uh, football, uh, particularly at the highest level, because it's all very well for me kind of playing for and occasionally watching a, a fan-owned club in uh, in Clapton. But, you know, that's that's very grassroots and I would love to have more control over, you know, what happens even to, to my club that are playing, you know, intermittently between the top two divisions, let alone higher up than that. Yeah, I mean, I think what, one thing that I've, I've always been struck by in terms of looking at the um, how these changes in football have come um, so, for instance, last year there was the they talked about the Super League that was going to essentially um, take the top three or four teams out of each out of the English, German, Spanish, and Italian leagues, maybe French league as well. And I remember at the time when the coverage of this appeared first, there was a sort of feeling that well, there's nothing we can do about it; it's kind of done. Only it was after there were a number of uh, fan protests um, at a number of high end Premier League games, a so, so, sort of thing you wouldn't see that led to a cancellation of a game. They realised that actually. The consumer is all, or the supporters are also, or the consumers are are supporters, um, and that th- there are there is a still a, an aspect of supporter of these really big important teams that are franchises, and that an awful lot of these supporters still exist and and still go to these games and still have a voice in um, what the club 
does in the, in these very very macro in that very very macro sense. Now joining the Super League was such an enormous and such a shuddering thing to do. Um, it was essentially decimating the domestic leagues, and I think that the, the response by the fans at that time was really really interesting. But I was also slightly disappointed by the response of the main of, of some of the mainstream media outlets in terms of well this is just the next development we better cover it and um, we better not uh, actually think about what's really bad about it but we just better cover it first and then see what happens and I think that's one of the problems is that an awful lot of football and the things around it it's just more content and it's just slightly more con- more interesting content than the last piece of content um, and I think that's sometimes the really important shifts in football are um, just forgotten as part of this content producing machine you know um, so I think that yeah those are the I think are the those are kind of to me are the big sort of vectors i suppose within these shifts and these changes and within these takeovers of clubs and such and things like it uh, in football and i think in the uk and england certainly like if you look at say how newcastle was taken over by the saudi by this uh, by um saudi arabia yeah i know they're wearing wearing the saudi arabia away um strip but, um as they're away or saudi arabia strip as they're away strip and i just think that the sort of lacked just the way this was just sort of taken on as a as a, as a, as a new development to me was kind of astonishing you know um, so I'm interested to see it's interesting to see how these things are accepted and some aren't uh, it's very hard to understand as well but I, it is really interesting to see how some things are and some things aren't and that filters all the way through to the game level because the other area where you know fans feel the separation between themselves and football is in rule changes and you know some of rule changes are good some some uh, have yet to be proven but they all suggest an impotence of the fans in in as much as the, as the fans choose to be impotent you know um like i think th- there are instances where the fans can actually do something about it like it's what i found very interesting was i was reading a book at the moment about fc union the um the Bel- the berlin team here who were you know up until about maybe what, three years ago were kind of up, moving up and down between the um third and second division essentially in the in the german leagues and now they're top of the bundesliga um but what's really interesting is that in their they are they're, that they're their fans built their own stands. The fans helped the club to keep going. And they have a very, very strong relationship the fans have with the actual club itself. Um, but the thing that's really interesting about it is that a large part of the stadium is standing. So it's not seated. Um, and I think the relationship that fans have when they're in a large stadium like this between seat, something small as sitting or standing is really, really interesting. And I know why standing went out of stadium all those years ago, particularly in the UK. But I think that um, it does definitely alter how you you become a slightly more passive, f- physically passive uh, um, um, watcher of the game. And I think all of these shifts, all these changes, I think have led to a greater passivity in terms of your connection to the two clubs, especially the really large clubs in the UK. And within the game, the thing that kind of gives that feeling of passivity are rule changes like the introduction of VAR, which is to 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 suddenly bring the action away from the field and even the stadium to somewhere down the line where there is a, a technical judgment will be, will be made. And that has a, a, a really distinct and strong effect on how we understand the game are it how have you tracked the um the arrival of of var and what it does to the game you love i think a lot about how we watch football on a screen right and not necessarily in a stadium and i still hate var even though most of the football i've watched i watched on a screen partly because 
I feel like it cuts something in the narrative and in the storyline of how we meet the actual events. Like when I'm watching something on television on my computer, I can see what the VAR is seeing. I know that the people in the stadium aren't. And I know that like it hurts them. And I know that it kind of like it breaks this bond, which I want to feel with both the players and the people in the stadium. And a minute or 30 seconds, it doesn't matter to me if it gets better because that action of breaking that bond feels irreversible to me. Yeah, I mean, some have called me an extremist on this issue, but personally, I feel that anyone who is involved with the introduction of VAR at a legislative level or a kind of manufacturing level, uh, anyone who has publicly argued for its introduction or even just likes it um, should be hauled in front of a People's Revolutionary Tribunal. (laughs) <laughs> it's the worst thing that has happened to live football in my lifetime. Um, you know, obviously, uh, this season, uh, Norwich do not have to uh, deal with it. But, you know, in our um, biannual Premier League seasons, we do. Um, and the experience of being <laughs> in a football ground when VAR is being used is just completely miserable. And it just kills the game stone dead. Uh, you know, the greatness of football lies in the speed and spontaneity of its shared emotions that's really you know what keeps us hooked to it uh, and var just drives a truck through that and the experience of being in a great in a ground for like three or four minutes sometimes uh sat under a big screen uh which is not allowed to replay the instant that's being reviewed uh while you sit and wait for a decision to be made for a goal that looked perfectly decent, only to be found it's been ruled out because, like, one of the strikers' fingernails was slightly offside. It It's awful, and it really, you know, I always thought the thing that would tip me over into just going and watching, like, my local team in the combined counties Premier Division uh, would be Norwich getting bought out by, you know, some sort of, like, war criminal or something, which did nearly happen. But no, it might be it might be VAR, actually. That might be the thing that finally makes me think that I can't be bothered with this anymore. <laughs> Adrian, you, you've written about VAR in particular. I'm not sure you're totally in favour of it either, but for, for a slightly yeah. different reason, that it, that it maybe is the most radical rupture that, the, that football has ever experienced, that it, it t- turns it into a different game. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with both Ort and Juliet here. Um, I think it is one of the worst things that's happened to the game. Um, and I think that what it, the, one of the problems with it, apart from the fact that it ruins the spontaneity of the game, which I think is one of the really bad enough, a bad enough a crime, but also that it pretends to fairness. Um, and what I, my problem with it is that it has introduced a sort of uh, a rupture into the fabric of the game that is not that is one that can't be shared right the way down through every single level of the game. So, like Juliet alluded to, you don't have VAR in the championship because what's the point? Or there are infrastructure in there, or there's not enough money involved, or there's not enough people betting on it, or whatever. Um, and I think the, the reason... That's, that's one thing. It pretends to be fair, but it's only fair for the most elite of games, the, the Premiership games and maybe uh, Champions League games. Um, even within that, say, let's say you were to take it as being fair, and let's say it were to amplify fairness, uh, what it does so, how it does so is by, is by cutting the referee, who is also a human being, and who is also a part of what football is, whether this referee being a figure of uh, vilification or one or a hero 
or a complete idiot um, or whatever way you want to view the referee. It's still a human being who's within the fluxes of the game and is an important part of what football is. Um, and if you start removing the referee and start introducing a sort of cyborg in instead, then you've just simply got a different game. You're looking at a different thing altogether. Um, and I think the thing, every single week something happens in VAR that enrages me more. Um, and I think the most pernicious thing that I'm starting to see now is that they've sort of seen somehow that the goal um, is not just a really important event in the game, but it's actually the peak of content in the game. So instead of just letting it flow through and showing and replaying and all that kind of stuff, that's not enough. No, we need to stop it, break it open and produce countless dramas within that <laughs> moment, within that goal itself. And to sort of, of course, this is going to be produces advertising space. It produces all manner of long, lengthens the the intensity, but it also weakens the intensity, and it also disintegrates the relationship people have with the game. So yeah, I think for just even if you were to say it was fair, uh, even at that, I think it's uh, it's just a really reprehensible development in the and game. It- it doesn't even fix the problem it's supposed to. You know, goal line technology is quick and, you know, I think I've only heard of it failing like once. Um, you know, the problem with VAR is it doesn't even remove the subjectivity of the decision making. It just makes it take like five times as long. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it kind of points to a sort of philosophical question, you know, that way that it, it, it exists in a world where there is a uh, there is no observer influencing the experiment, that there is an absolute final truth. And of course, you know, that's that's not uh, that's not the universe in which we live. And therefore, it, it's just introducing a different type of subjectivity. Well, it's also like. It lingers so much about looking at things from different angles, but none of them are a very human angle per se. So it's not like, you know, American NFL where there's, I'm not saying that I'm interested in adding more and more media streams to every way that we watch the game, but at least then you can see it from a player's perspective or from the referee's perspective. VAR has this pretense that there is like a golden angle from which reality emerges and that that angle seems to be like far from human beings exactly what kind of aura was saying there that yeah like the point of view even that it gives you is one that's sort of so it pretends to sort of precision but i mean it's 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 dealing across like a perspective of lines across the pitch that like just cannot possibly be uh uh, like when you start getting down to things like is the person's forearm or finger in front of the other like at what point do you stop looking at this it's just a sort of a pretense of clarity and fairness and I mean I think this thing that and this is something that I was kind of saying in the essay as well sorry I'm ranting here a bit because I just get so angry about it but I actually think that unfairness is very important in games even if you were to take VAR as being fair and I because I'm, the reason I think it's really important and it's not because it's for a good reason I remember when um, Thierry Henry's handball against Ireland in the World Cup qualifier right that was a, a, a moment of profound unfairness for the Irish football team and I think a lot of the Irish team are still really hurting from it however I remember it and it connects an awful lot of Irish footballing fans and it would connect us to the Irish footballing team in some strange way and I think unfairness is also a part of the game and to try to pretend to sort of grind it out is just a sort of ridiculous and um, not necessarily what what I think it would remove something that's also important in the game and so yeah I think these points of view and all these kind of things, I, I don't know, it's just all of it, just, it just smells all wrong, you know. 
Uh, Juliet Jakes, you've recently been writing about um, when artists, filmmakers take on football, and uh, this must be something of the same impulse uh, behind VAR, which is to you know to find that perfect image of football, and and, and, you know that that uh, that there's an art process rather than a you know a forensic process that could deliver a a perfect image of football. Tell us about um, artists and football. Why would they uh, choose football as a subject? Well, I wouldn't... I mean, I'd just haul you up on, on sort of the impulse behind VAR is completely different, I think. Um, you know, the impulse behind VAR is to, you know, eradicate imperfection. Uh, and I just think it's being done in this, like, very kind of misconceived and sort of dunderheaded way. You know, artists and football, I think... Uh, I remember being very struck... As an undergraduate, I was reading a book about uh, late 19th century France. And that really, you know, late 19th century France is the sort of cradle of um, of organised international sporting competition. It's where the um, where the modern Olympics comes from, which, of course, hosted the first international um, football tournaments. Uh, and, you know, you can follow the sort of invention of the World Cup, the European Cup and the European Championship uh, into the 20th century through those through those ideals in France. And uh, one of my favourite writers, Guillaume Apollinaire, who's a uh, naturalised French uh, poet, talked about how in fin de siècle France it was very much the fashion to, to scoff at sports. And I think there's something very interesting about how any artist who engages with sport, and particularly football, is kind of flying in the face of a sort of, you know, cultural and intellectual prejudice against sports really as you know something that for example like noam chomsky really characterized as um as prole feed basically as something that's just used to like pacify the masses uh and you know artists sort of look for and often find something much more complicated and much more interesting in it you know whether it's um football as you know kind of microcosm for the for the wider society like um corneliu Porumboyu's film uh, the second game about uh, a derby match between um, Dinamo and Stoia Bucharest in um, the dying days of Ceausescu's Romania, or just the sort of pure aesthetic of it. Uh, and a good example of this, of course, is Douglas Gordon and Philippe Pereno's film Zidane, a 21st century portrait, which, you know, takes the world's greatest footballer at that point and, you know, really tries to sort of locate uh, what made Zidane such a sort of interesting player and such a sort of brooding outsider within what is very much a kind of team game um, or, you know, tries to find something interesting within the fan culture. I'm, I'm very fond of the um, Slovenian documentary maker, Jose Podgacnic, uh short film uh, Derby about a match between Olympia of Ljubljana and uh, Maribor of Branik in the Yugoslav second league in the sixties. Uh, and just looking at what the fan culture is like, um, Jacques Tati made a, a short film about Bastia uh, reaching the UEFA Cup final in 1978 as well, that just really, um, you don't really see any of the football. It's just about the the town in Corsica and and what the atmosphere is like as a result. So I think there are lots of ways into into football for for artists. You know, there are sociological ways in, there are aesthetic ways in, there are political ways in. Um, It's just an endless source of fascination for me and I always love seeing... um, creative responses to it are you at all fascinated by the creative response of of how var is displayed i mean i I get the feeling the answer to this question (laughs) is no but there are there is a whole band of aesthetic decisions made about how we will display reality i mean it it strikes me as the complete opposite of art and aesthetics it's sort of trying to remove 
interpretation as much as possible, right? And any sort of subjective interpretation uh, in a way that I think is just, you know, utterly kind of failed. I mean, I'm very, I'm very interested in how football is filmed and presented to the public. Um, and as somebody who's really interested in the history of football, um, I find it really fascinating that, like, filmmakers and broadcasters didn't really work out how to film football in a way that is actually comprehensible to somebody who's not at the game, probably until about the 1960s, I'd say. Have you watched any newsreels from from football before the, the 1960s? All these sort of like close-up shots um, with just one player in the frame. And you're like, well, look, this is, you know, I cannot read this match at all. No, I mean, maybe maybe my blind hatred of VAR is stopping me <laughs> from seeing uh, seeing anything aesthetically interesting in it. Um, but no, I think it's the opposite of art, really. Well, I wonder, could you imagine people looking at a, a VAR uh, run-through of a, of a decision and, and finding that the apogee of football representation in television, you know, in 100 years' time? They had no idea how to represent football, but suddenly then they found, <laughs> you know, slow motion and perspective lines, and, and now I can understand football. I mean, those things have been there for a long time, though. I mean, you know, 1970s, you know, you watch like footage of the 1978 World Cup or something, you know, there's slow motion replays and there's different angles and and all of these things, you know, they're not just being argued over in a studio uh, by a bunch of self-important pundits quite so much, um, <laughs> which is what's led to VAR, I think, is, is you know, it's the, it's the sort of the media coming back into the sport, right? The sport is mediatized, is, is sort of colonized by the media. Wait, I want to make a little argument in favor, not of VAR, but of reruns and replays. And I feel like there is very critical position about, you know, like kids these days who don't want to watch 90 minutes and they just want to watch like highlight reels on YouTube or like they just want to watch like skills videos for players. They don't really want to follow the player. And I want to make an argument for just different forms of media through which we experience football. And so maybe not VAR specifically, but like a rerun, a replay, those moments in which you can like feel that excitement build up again and again. Like when a player scores, I have a feeling that there's this second before anyone knows that the ball is going to get into into the net, but the player knows it. And that a replay might get us a tiny bit closer to their experience of being on the pitch. I don't think VAR gets us there, but I do think that like a really rich media environment could be really interesting. I spent a lot of time watching tiny little reels on YouTube. Um, they make me love it more. I, I mean, it's funny that uh, Douglas Gordon should have been involved in the Zidane film when you think about his 24-hour psycho, which is really about sort of examining those moments and seeing, you know, uh, at, at what quantum level you can understand time and uh, and motion. Yeah, I mean, obviously they, they set up like 17 cameras um, to track Zidane through that game for Real Madrid against Villarreal in uh, 2005. And I think what's interesting about the Douglas Gordon film is there's this, yeah, obviously this very intensive focus on Zidane and nothing is left to chance in that respect. You know, they're going to capture his every movement, his every facial expression, and that's what they edit together with the film. The chance comes from, I mean, maybe they would have turned up at the game and Zidane gets injured in the warm-up and doesn't play at all. What do they do then? Do they make, like, David Beckham a 21st century portrait instead? Um, <laughs> you know, Zidane maybe, you know, plays for, like, 20 minutes and, and gets injured. Then you've got, like, a short film that plays in the gallery. As it happens, Zidane plays 85 minutes 
sets up a goal uh, and then gets sent off at a feature length point of the game. Uh, and then, you know, as luck would have it, um, I think he got sent off in another game a year or so later. And uh, this increased the um, the interest in the, the film in 2006 after the uh, after the World Cup final, um, you know, still enigmatic and inexplicable headbutt on uh, Marco Materazzi. I mean, not inexplicable in that, you know, Materazzi just, you know, just deserved it. But, um, <laughs> you know, inexplicable to, to do that at that point in the game uh, in a way that's really fascinating and also produced, I think, maybe my favourite piece of writing on, on football, which is um, Zidane's Melancholy by uh, Jean-Philippe Toussaint. Uh, Toussaint was actually at the game, so he didn't see the headbutt um, because it wasn't shown on the, the screens. And he sort of speculates about Zidane using the headbutt to sort of short circuit his own symbolic death of retirement and, you know, kind of leave options open and uh, sort of change the sort of conventional narrative as the football sort of victory and defeat. But but the Douglas Gordon film is is very much about chance in a very sort of controlled and interesting way, I think. What appears there, which I find very interesting, is that, you know, that, that looking very closely at football is not supposed to tell us anything about football. It's supposed to tell us something about everything that isn't football. And, and maybe VAR does that quite effectively. Um... <sighs> <laughs> Somebody must want that. <laughs> um, I mean, VAR maybe, I think, tells us about something... I mean, I think VAR tells us something about the media replacing democracy you know the the media obviously kind of like colonizes the role of the referee and it makes the var makes the media and mediatization more important than the supporters more important than the sports in the stadium and you know it it makes sort of something something about officiating become a discussion that just happens kind of completely over our heads and you know var is imposed from above and there's nothing you can do about it i don't know anyone who goes to football on a regular basis, who, like, thinks VAR has improved it uh, or even hasn't made it worse. Yeah, I mean, I think what's um, interesting about football, and this is something that I... That, like, you can read the world, you know. You can read aspects, just as Juliet was saying there, you can read aspects of and shifts in the world. Football kind of reflects the world in certain respects, you know. And I think that an awful lot of, if you look at, say, the football pitch and if you look at, say, the football stadium, certainly ones that were, say, built and that still exist, um, say, Goodison Park or something like that, they sort of reach back and talk to us very clearly about a kind of um, the way in which um, land was looked at in a Victorian time, the way in which labour was looked at in a Victorian time, the way in which um, space was organised in Victorian times. And I think that there's many aspects in football that reflect that, so essentially late industrial industrial revolution period. So you have a factory floor, you have skilled workers doing very particular things, you have types of communication over distances using flags and whistles, um, you have um, a sort of a steel structure housing many many people doing doing these many different things. And I think what's really interesting about it is that these things have, these Victorian structures have held football um, very, very effectively, right the way up until, like, say, right up, right, right the way up until, let's say, the internet appearing, um, in that betting and all of the other surrounding structures with it were of that time as well. So, let's say, for instance, now betting is completely altered. Um, how an awful lot of people even watch the game, and I mean, when they're watching the game in the pitch, an awful lot of people bet on phones and this kind of stuff. And I think that that's one thing that you're seeing, and this is something that I'm very interested in, is how. Victorian structures that have held so much of Western society in place, um, in terms of when I talk about Victorian structures and infrastructures, 
Um, and that you see these ruptures then coming in via things like like VAR, which is not um, a Victorian structure. It's a structure from from now. You know, it's a, it's a it's a it's a type of mediation and it's a type of um, how would you say it? Um, uh, watching over of events uh, that um, that is that belongs to, more so to now than it does to what was before. And I think that clashing of worlds is partly what's that creates this dis- dissonance, this aesthetic dissonance for me anyway, apart from all of the other things, but just the aesthetic dissonance of one thing being crushed by the other or being v- very brutally interrupted. Yeah, uh, that's absolutely fascinating. And I wonder, is it that we're, you know, we, we find ourselves in a moment when that sort of Victorian uh, substructure that kept the game in place is being replaced by this sort of technocratic uh, uh, digital media infrastructure? I mean, I always think that VAR is halfway to, well, why have players? Why not have intelligent agents and uh, probabilities of where a ball might land? You know, we're on the way to where the game isn't physical anymore, maybe. Well, I think also part of it is that gaming um, gaming has had a huge effect on the aesthetics of football as well, in that a lot of people, their first instance is to play, is to game at football. And looking at the new football games like FIFA and what have you, you can see that the effect on the way in which the larger games are being presented, that there's an awful lot of the tropes from gaming appear within these, uh, within these larger and sort of more, more important inverted commas games as well. I'm very interested in the sort of feeling that's uh, that's in the room about VAR as it uh, as as a sort of abomination that's uh, heralding the end of something. Do you see a radical change happening in the game, or is is this just something fraying at the edges? Or- things are definitely changing, but there are certain things about football that people don't want to change. They still want to think about an event and something that's irreplaceable and that wh- like that where were you when it happened kind of element. And so, as much as we all complain about VAR or talk about really serious and intense concerns around money and racism and politics around the game. Um, At the base level, we agree that we are coming together around this one-time event and that we want to watch it and that we want to watch it together. VAR just interrupts that. Um, But that basic instinct, I don't think is going anywhere or I don't want it to. You raise re- racism and, and other kind of um, problems within the game. I mean, one of the reasons that people have particular disdain for this tournament about to happen in Qatar is their treatment of LGBT people and their, you know, attitude to, to human rights. But of course, the game outside of Qatar, you know, rainbow laces notwithstanding, the elite game is does not necessarily have a perfect record. It's not like that this is a, a, a strange blot. Yeah, I mean, I've done a lot of work around this kind of in the past. And I think part of the problem is that you know, this is this is one of the issues around globalization that it feels like there's very little you can do as an LGBT fan here to try and sort of change anything, even for the duration of the tournament, let alone more more generally. And again, I mean, it refers back to what I said earlier about, you know, any sort of power to change the culture of football being, you know, well out of out of ordinary people's hands. And I think that's that's what makes it so kind of kind of offensive you know domestically lots of, of fans have um 
campaigned to make football you know more welcoming to women and to um people of color and to lgbt plus people and you can do that on the you know even at the level of supporting quite a big well-supported successful club side you can do that on the level of forming fans groups and you know writing and blogging and um you know organizing around the matches uh whereas here it feels you can't because you know you're up against like this very autocratic uh regime with um you know very brutally homophobic uh policies like much more so even than uh, russia in 2018 so there's a kind of powerlessness there which just makes the whole thing feel very kind of brazen and ties in with you know the problems around like the number of migrant workers who, who've died in Qatar um, since the tournament was awarded. Uh, and just the fact that it's just like too hot to play football in Qatar in the summer. And, you know, all the other things that really ought to just be deal breakers for this tournament that, you know, because of the sums of money involved, uh, just aren't. And, you know, the issues around LGBT fans is just like one element of how just repugnant the whole thing is. Interesting with what you were saying, Adrian, earlier about the the Super League and the breakaway, and that there was, uh, you know, that there was fan power. The impotence was was not it was imagined in some ways, and it seems that like some of the long standing issues around football and various types of prejudice don't seem to be susceptible to the same kind of um, grassroots initiatives. Yeah, I mean, I'm not blaming you. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I think Juliet has really pointed out the main differences, uh, and I think those differences are between what you can do in Qatar and what can, what you can do outside of Qatar, and what you can do outside of, let's say, in, in other parts of the, of the world where it's not illegal um, to be a member of that community. Can I say something about grassroots political action and how it could intersect with football, actually? Um, because I feel like I've been watching it very closely around the election in Brazil this week, where I was very upset to see that so many of the Brazilian football players who I watch and love are all Bolsonaro supporters. And I know it's about religion and I'm making excuses, um, but I also saw Corinthian fans stopping Bolsonaristas who just tried to stop people from voting. And I could see that like fandom is something that brings people together and that they see a possibility for political action and to me, all political action is about being in the street together with other people who believe in the same things that you do. Um, and so I do find some moments of hopefulness in this. Well, it's good that that there is a moment of hopefulness. I think we've we've made a great list of all the reasons you might hesitate to enjoy the World Cup. But that leaves uh, one question which I'd like to ask you all. What will you be doing about 4pm Doha time tomorrow as Qatar kick off against Ecuador? Juliet? Uh, I mean, I have no interest in that particular match at all. Um, <laughs> I was actually in um, Ukraine uh, for the 2018 World Cup. Uh, and obviously the Ukrainians were boycotting that tournament um, because of the uh, war in the East with Russia. And, you know, as an outsider, I wanted to guiltily watch the World Cup anyway. Um, so I went to a bar uh, just off Krishatik, the main street in Kiev, uh, and I watched uh, Russia play Saudi Arabia uh, in the first match of the tournament. Uh, and there was me, there was a handful of Dutch tourists, there was two Ukrainian bar staff who just looked utterly kind of, 
somewhere between apathetic and appalled about the whole thing and like one russian guy who was sort of trying to keep a low profile every time his country scored and the footage cut to uh vladimir putin just kind of you know having his hilarious banter with um, Mohammed bin salman um and the whole spectacle was just like pretty objectionable um i mean Qatavi, ecuador the quality of that football is going to be so low um and you know the politics around that game in particular are going to be so um nauseating i i i well i will probably end up watching some of the tournament but i'm not going to watch that <laughs> great are it i will be watching every single game of the tournament because i've always watched every single game in the tournament my <laughs> decision with myself is that i'm not going to be very public about it i'm not going to amplify it the way i usually do when i watch football by like being on social media and talking about it all the time I hope that I manage to, every time I discuss it, discuss how repugnant and horrible everything about this World Cup is. But I also want to mention that I don't deserve to have this taken away from me. This is something that I love. And I will be watching France and directing all of my love at France and arguing, as always, that like my love matters in this case, too. So it'll be it's kind of like eating an ortolan or something and be doing it with a with a, a serviette over your head. Adrian, where will you be? <laughs> where will I be? Um, I hate opening ceremonies and I've always hated them, so I won't be watching that game, um, if only to avoid the opening <laughs> ceremony. And uh, ever since Diana Ross missed that goal in uh, 1994, I have not been able to look at another one since. Um, but um, no, I won't be watching that game. And I actually think... I don't think I'll watch a lot of the World Cup. Uh, a, I mean, if Ireland were in it, that might be a different answer. Um, but I don't think I will be watching an awful lot of it. And it's not necessarily, it's partly to do with the fact that I, I, I don't agree with the World Cup being on Qatar at this time of year and all that kind of stuff. But also, there's just so much football as well. And it's, um, I think there's, um, you know, you can be oversaturated with the product. Um, and if you can get a chance to take some time off, then I try to do so um but i will definitely be f- looking at who probably results and this kind of stuff so yeah it'll be i think it'll be a slightly distance experience um but it, it's not to say i won't be watching the final and that kind of thing you know okay well thank you all very much for uh, contributing to the culture file debate on football if you would like to read more about what orit gat juliet jakes and adrian duncan have written about football the current edition of paper visual art magazine is the place to have a, a read thank you again very much and um well i can't say happy watching but maybe um shameless watching not sure thank you all very much bye 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 bye, bye.